0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with a biographer of U.S. military bases, David Vine. He's an anthropologist at American University in Washington, D.C., and will be discussing his new book, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts, from Columbus to the Islamic State. The book is a very strong indictment of war infrastructure, and in particular of military bases. In tracing the long history of bases, Vine shows that they make launching a war easier and therefore more likely, and they can help explain why war has been so central to U.S. history. Um, And so we'll be working through this argument uh, and talking a little bit more broadly about war in U.S. history. So, David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dexter. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. And so this is your third book that deals with the U.S.'s base empire, um, you know, to borrow the the last, the last title of your last book. Um, and so I would just love to know what drew you to the study of foreign military bases in the first place.
1: It's a good question. Foreign military bases are not the topic of average everyday conversation and weren't much on my mind for most of my life, until actually just about 19 years to the day, uh, shortly before the attacks of September 11th, 2001, in fact, in, in August 2001, I got a very lucky phone call. I was in graduate school. I was studying gentrification and the displacement associated with gentrification. And I got a phone call from a lawyer who was representing a group of displaced people Although in this case, it was a group of people who had been displaced by a now very large U.S. military base, a base on the island of Diego Garcia, which is a small and very little-known island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And the the people, uh, they're called the indigenous Chagosian people, had been forced from their homes by both the U.S. and British governments. Britain claims this island and the surrounding islands. Uh, the people, the Chagosians, were displaced from their homes in the late 1960s and early 1970s as part of the construction of the, the military base on Diego Garcia. And now, for uh, almost uh, for more than 50 years, the people have been struggling to go back to their homes, to demand the right to return to their homes. And the lawyer was calling me 19 years ago uh, because he and some other lawyers were representing the Chagosians in lawsuits against both the british government and the us government and they were looking for a a graduate student essentially to do some from some free research Uh, i was more than happy to oblige i knew nothing of this story i vaguely knew that the united states had a military base on an island called diego garcia from the first gulf war 1991 but I knew nothing about the Chagossians and and almost no one in the United States, uh, almost no one around the world knows anything about the Chagossians and their exile. So I was uh, intrigued to know more and 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 frankly uh, ashamed um, that my government had kicked this entire people out of their homes. Uh, and that resulted in research that ultimately became my a dissertation, my PhD dissertation, and and then a book, which uh, by the title of "Island of Shame," which I guess captures some of of how I felt. Uh, but the, the, in short, the the research I carried out for the lawyers was was focused pretty narrowly on documenting the effects of the expulsion of the Chigosians, the effects of 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 what it means to be forced from your homes. Uh, in addition to some some other work for them. But for my dissertation and then the book, Island of Shame, I really wanted to expand my view and understand why it was that U.S. government officials thought it was important and appropriate to forcibly remove an entire people from their homes and why they thought it was important to have a military base in the middle of the Indian Ocean in the first place. And this led me to look at and begin to examine the whole network of U.S. military bases uh, that now encircle the globe, Uh, a network of bases that, again, I had some vague sense that the United States government and the U.S. military had bases in places like Germany and Okinawa, Japan, South Korea. But I had no idea that uh, the U.S. uh, had more military bases on other people's land than any country or empire or people in world history. Uh, Now they number about 800 bases in around 80 countries. Uh, the number has been even higher in, in previous years. Uh, but the, the in essence, the Chagosians and their story and the story of Diego Garcia m- opened my eyes to this, this network of bases and, and led me to ask questions about why does the United States have so many bases around the world? Does the United States need all these bases? What are these bases doing? What sort of effects are they having? Are they protecting the security of the United States in any sense uh, are there better ways to secure the United States and its people? Uh, and that has then led to 19 years of, of research and writing.
0: Wow. So it really was um, this this phone call, this fortuitous phone call that basically led you down a two-decade path. Precisely. That's incredible. And, and so um, I'd, I'd really like to get a sense of the book's overall argument before we dip into particular chapters. Um, And so in the introduction, you highlight just how normal war has been in U.S. history. You show that the U.S. military has um, gone or has participated in war or stationed troops overseas in all but 11 years of of the entire history of the republic. And so that's a lot of war. Um, and then you have um, uh, an explanation for this, um, and it's summed up in um, uh, your dictum, um, if we build them, wars will come. You know, That is to say, if um, the U.S. constructs military bases, wars will happen. Um, can you walk readers through this line of argument?
1: Sure. So the, it might be helpful uh, for people to, to know that the the estimate of 11 years in which the United States has not been involved in some form of war or other combat Uh, is based on a a list of of wars and uh, other forms of combat that that the US military has been engaged in since independence that I developed uh, based on a congressional research service report that actually comes out every year, updating uh, the list of US wars and military interventions, invasions, other forms of combat. So that's the basis for, for that uh, estimate that, that effectively the United States has been engaged in some form of war or combat for 95% of its history, 95% of the years in U.S. history. Wow. And I wanted to understand why. Why has the United States been at war so constantly, uh, so incessantly, and, you know, sometimes you hear people talk about the United States being addicted to war, or the United States was, you know, formed in war and thus is sort of destined to, uh, to, to fight forever. Um, there's there are explanations often rooted in, in sort of metaphors, uh, the, the DNA of the United States is rooted in war. And actually, I don't find these explanations very useful or, or accurate for that matter, because they are most of them sort of rooted in in metaphor rather than an examination of of U.S. history. So building off my my work on bases, I wanted to understand this this pattern of, of, of near permanent warfare. And I began to think more about the role of U.S. military bases and specifically U.S. military bases abroad in this pattern of war. And it actually was, in a sense, correcting a certain omission in my earlier work or an area of my research that I had given short shrift. Uh, like other scholars, I, in my study of U.S. military bases abroad, had mostly focused on bases outside North America. I, like others, I think, completely overlooked the fact or Eventually, I didn't didn't completely overlook, but uh, I I largely overlooked the fact that, of course, the first U.S. military bases abroad were on Native American people's lands, the the, the lands of Native American nations and peoples and tribes. Uh, These were the first military bases abroad, uh, the first extraterritorial US military bases. And I began to look at the role those bases played in the expansion of the United States. And, and indeed, they played a key role. Uh, they were, as one historian puts it, the, the pry bar uh, of conquest and the expansion of the United States first across North America, and then increasingly to parts of the, uh, other parts of the globe. Uh, so the, the, the line, as you mentioned, if you build them Wars Will Come, it actually refers both to bases and empire. Um, the, the them refers to both bases and empire. Uh, and the argument of the book is that U.S. military bases, as, as with other empires and, and world powers, bases enable war. Bases are tools for militaries uh, to launch and sustain warfare. Uh, the argument of the book is is not just that Base, U.S. bases abroad have enabled war, have made war possible. They have. But that they have actually also made war more likely. That when you build bases abroad, when you build bases on other people's territory, these bases tend not to be defensive in nature. They tend to be offensive in nature. And they, for a variety of reasons, tend to make future wars more likely. And then the future construction of yet more military bases abroad, which tend to and make future wars more likely in a, a process that that has continued over time a cycle that has continued over time similarly uh, if you build an empire um, as us leaders us elites us politicians uh, very consciously thought of the United States from the earliest days of the republic uh, us leaders us politicians us elites modeled the United States in many ways off the European empires of the day. And if you seek to build an empire, one should not be surprised when war is the
0: frequent and almost uh, constant result. Great. That's a really helpful overview of the book. And I think it also would be helpful for us to talk a little bit about the U.S.'s justification for maintaining all of these bases. Like, can you just really quickly tell listeners what, um, like, what the ostensible, um, you know, rationale is to have eight hundred military bases around the world?
1: There has been an assumption since World War II and the earliest days of the Cold War uh, in mainstream foreign policy circles and among. U.S. politicians and, and others, that the United States must have a l- very large collection of military bases and a very large collection of U.S. military personnel around the world on other people's territories to ensure the security of the United States. It has been uh, an assumption that it's what's often called the, the forward strategy or forward posture uh, of maintaining hundreds of bases and hundreds of thousands of troops outside the United States is necessary uh, to protect the United States. And and basically this assumption has gone unquestioned for the most part for for far too long. Uh, The argument is that these bases deter enemies. They deter uh, any other power from uh, engaging in any sort of military action. Uh, The argument is that these bases uh, ensure stability and peace around the world. Uh, and in fact, most of the claims made for maintaining this huge collection of bases around the world basically lack evidence, uh, lack, in some cases, evidence of any kind. Um, the evidence that that bases, U.S. bases abroad, deter enemies uh, in any sort of a, effective way is, is very inconclusive at, at best. Um, the argument that U.S. bases around the world... Have ensured peace and security and, and stability is, you know, really should be laughable. Uh, these bases that the United States has maintained, especially if we just look at the last 19 years, US bases abroad have enabled war. They have launched a long series of wars, uh, most notably, of course, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the overlapping war in, in uh, Pakistan, um, the wars more recently in Iraq and, and Syria against the Islamic State. Uh, far from ensuring peace and stability, U.S. wars have, have enabled, uh, sorry, excuse me, U.S. bases have enabled and uh, enabled the launching of, of wars. And, and the same is the case, of course, in the, the U.S. war in, in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. Uh, a large collection of U.S. bases in East Asia made that war possible, uh, made it not just possible, but made it easier. It made it an easier policy option and choice for U.S. policymakers. Uh, in, in short, uh, U.S. bases abroad have made it far too easy uh, for a very long time for U.S. policymakers uh, to choose war, to launch war.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, like when you when you really start to think about the purpose of the bases, it just seems so obvious, you know. But like what your book does so um, wonderfully is that like it it makes an obvious case, but that a case that is also still very provocative.
1: I I hope so. And and the other way I, I introduce the these sorts of ideas is by asking people to see, basically, to see the world from from the perspective of others in a sort of classic anthropological sense. You know, if another world power were to build a military base, one of their military bases near the borders of the United States, anywhere near the borders of the United States, how would we as people in the United States feel about a you know just even a single Russian base near the borders of the United States or a single Chinese base, or even a single base of an ally? If there was a you know, British or French base uh, near the border of the Canadian-US border or the Mexican-US border, how would we feel? Um, we need only look at the you know the most dangerous moment of the Cold War was when the Soviet Union built a military base, a missile base, in Cuba, ninety miles from Miami. This brought the world closer to nuclear war than we've ever been as human beings. Uh, and you know the the idea as as u s. policymakers and leaders have have claimed for so long that that u s. bases abroad are purely defensive, purely for the good of of the peace and security of the the world, really should be laughable, and and it shouldn't surprise us that that the leaders of other nations, that the people of other nations, see these bases as they generally are as offensive and as threats to their security.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree that um, uh, that that assumption should be laughable, but it it also does seem to be consensus among um, you know the, the the people that are making these decisions. Um, and so, so actually another thing that I, I would just love to have a, a, a quick conversation about is your method, um, because your approach to doing research, um, uh, is really fascinating, especially to me as a historian, uh, as a, a trained historian, um, you know, you are combining archival research with interviews and ethnography and cartography and just, you know, um, like like empirical data crunching. Can you say a little bit about your method and how you approach your research?
1: It's a great question. I guess my, my longstanding approach has been to use every method available to me, every method that I can employ to understand the question at hand. I think that the disciplines, the social science disciplines, the disciplines of the humanities, are largely outdated and not very useful and often keeping people in boxes about what they can do, what methods they can employ. And happily in in anthropology, uh, anthropologists have been drawing on the work of historians and and their work has looked more and more historical in nature for, I don't know, four decades or more. Uh, So we've seen a, a really nice merging of anthropology and and history, at least from, from my perspective as someone trained in anthropology. But I, I mean, one of the reasons I like anthropology is, um, even though I would do away with the disciplines entirely, but while they exist, one of the reasons I like it is that it, it really allows you to, to draw upon all the social sciences and humanities to combine uh, the methods of sociology and history and political science and economics and even psychology uh, and other you know humanities uh, uh depending on how one thinks about history whether it's a humanity or a, a social science but in any respect um the, the the main point is that i i i try to use whatever methods are available to me and uh, that can that can hopefully best answer the questions at hand
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and so yeah let's let's get into the book um, so uh, you start off the book with a discussion of Christopher Columbus, um, you know, and, and uh, he's in, in your title. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, um, in, in your book, you show that it was actually Columbus who, um, you know, built the first European base in the Western Hemisphere. Um, can you just share with listeners like why you decided to start um, a book about um, U.S. Um, forever wars um, with Columbus?
1: Yeah, it was important to me actually since uh, I began my research on Diego Garcia to see uh, the long durée, as you put it, the, the, the much longer perspective of world history, to place uh, the actions of, of the US government, US leaders in, in that larger context. And in some ways, that uh, necessity was, was made clear for me by looking at Diego Garcia. The first people to be interested in putting a military base on Diego Garcia were not U.S. Navy officials, as as there, there were U.S. Navy officials in the 1950s and 60s who got excited and interested in putting a base on Diego Garcia. But the first ones to do it were actually French and British military and diplomatic officials uh, in the 18th century. And that told me something and made me, in in trying to explain and tell the story of Diego Garcia, see how there's a much larger imperial story and a a story of imperial succession. The French were the first to uh, claim and uh, occupy Diego Garcia and the surrounding islands in the Indian Ocean. Uh, They never put a military base there, but that is precisely why they initially uh, claimed the islands. Uh, Britain then succeeded the, the French Empire um, at the end of the N- Napoleonic Wars and claimed the islands and occupied them. And then in the last days of the, the British Empire in the 1950s, 1960s, you see a transition to the U.S. Empire. And again, you know, many in the United States, myself included in, in many ways, and even to this day, but certainly as I was growing up, didn't don't like to think of the united states as an empire Um, but for reasons that i explain in the book uh, i think we have to face facts and face the reality that the united states is an empire has been an empire since its founding and that that empire emerges out of a longer history of of European imperialism in the Americas uh that dates of course to the arrival of of the person who in English we call Christopher Columbus.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah and and um you visited Guantanamo Bay and that's sort of how you start, you you set up uh the the beginning of the book. And so um can, can you just sh- share with listeners like what you learned um uh, on your um your your trip to Gitmo? Sure. And, you know, this is
1: another case where, where in some ways islands have a lot to teach us, uh, but also the importance of, of ethnographic research. You know, your question about methodology is, is a, a, a really helpful one. And, and I, I would, you know, in addition to combining all the methods of different social sciences, I, I do think there is uh, something really important about ethnographic research in particular about about seeing and interacting with and listening carefully to people and, and to being there, to being in a place you're trying to understand. Ironically, with Diego Garcia, I, I wrote a book about and tried to understand a place I could never visit. You can't go to Diego Garcia unless you're in the in the U.S. military or British military. Um, no civilians have gone there effectively uh, since the early 1980s. Um, but Guantanamo Bay, sort of ironically, is much easier to visit. I was able to go there as a journalist and, and researcher, uh, because in the early days of the, the Bush administration, uh, the Bush administ- George W. Bush administration wanted to show the world that, you know, we're not torturing people at, at Gitmo, at Guantanamo Bay. Um, so I was able to, to, to visit, to tour the, the prison and the rest of the base. Most people... Uh, think only of of the prison when they think of Guantanamo Bay, but the vast majority of the base, which is about the size of Washington, D.C., the vast majority of the base is is a a U.S. base that looks a whole lot like U.S. bases around the world, which is to say looks a whole lot like a not-so-small U.S. town. Uh, Bases around the world, U.S. bases around the world, are like uh, Little Americas, as they're often referred to, uh, small or not so small U.S. towns, complete with uh, hospitals and schools, and fast food and healthcare centers and fitness centers, uh, recreational facilities, uh, all the all the, the the trappings of of a pretty cushy suburban style lifestyle. When I went to Guantanamo Bay, in addition to seeing all that, I got to tour this very small museum in the, in the base of a lighthouse. And there, there was a, a sort of yearbook from Guantanamo Bay. There, like schools and camps, they have an annual yearbook. And there was one that was celebrating the arrival of Columbus at Guantanamo Bay in 1494. And this was news to me that, First, that I, if I never knew it, i had forgotten that, that Columbus arrived at, at Guantanamo Bay, as he, as he indeed had on, on his second voyage to the Americas. And it seemed quite telling that both that he had arrived there, Guantanamo Bay, this place that has become so significant in recent history, and that the base on Guantanamo Bay was celebrating his arrival. And that seemed to say a lot about the the longer-term imperial history and trajectory that the U.S. Empire is a part of.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and maybe just jumping ahead a little bit, um, one of my favorite chapters um, was titled, or is titled, Why Are So Many Places Named Fort? And again, this is, um, you know, like a really simple premise um, but also extremely provocative because, um, you know, like how often do we ever actually think about, um, you know, the histories of all these places that are named Fort? Um, you know, there's Fort Worth, Fort Lauderdale, um, uh, you know, um, Fort Knox. Uh, uh, and, you know, all these places refer to um, a military installation um, that existed in the past, Um but for some reason their history is is always obscured when we're actually in those places. Um can you try and answer your question um wh- why are so many places named for it?
1: Yeah, I mean you, you put it really nicely and and capture sort of the the way in which I I I didn't think much about these names. Uh, I didn't think about that. I lived in a neighborhood called Fort green (laughs) and somehow never made the connection to my work about us military bases. Uh, the Fort green refers to a revolutionary war era fort. Um, but the, the vast majority of, of places named fort, uh, were us army forts, uh, that followed, uh, the, the creation of the United States that followed the Revolutionary War, although some, like Fort Lauderdale, actually predate the, the establishment of the United States and and got their names from, from, again, from the Spanish Empire or the French Empire or the British Empire. Uh, and I wanted to call people's attention to all these places, all you know, these place names, these cities, these towns uh, named Fort, to call people's attention to the extent to which the history of the United States has been written by war, has been written by conquest, by expansion and by the military bases, the military forts that have enabled that conquest and expansion and and those Mm -hmm. wars. Uh,
0: Yeah. And just um, jumping ahead again, we're going to be doing a lot of leaping just because we're covering so much time, but you, also have an interesting and related uh, um, to this uh, chapter we just talked about, um, reading of 1898, um, you know, the year that the U.S. went to war against the Spanish Empire and the Caribbean and Pacific. Um, and what I found really fascinating was that um, you put bases at the center of the narrative, um, you know, because firstly, it um, uh, it connects up to this older history of forts, um, you know, in, in the West. Um, but then it also um, puts um, uh, bases at the center in the sense that it was because of bases that the U.S. was able to, for instance, send troops to the Philippines or send troops to Cuba. Can you uh, um, share with listeners um, what happened in 1898 and um, and say a little bit about the role of bases?
1: Sure. I think it's a, a good example of the way in which U.S. bases abroad have begat wars, which have begat more U.S. bases abroad, which have begat more U.S. wars. Um, that this cycle of bases and wars and bases and wars and bases and wars—you um, know—again it, it, didn't seem to me a coincidence that one of the main launch pad launch pads for uh, the wars in the Pacific, in particular, against the, the Spanish Empire. Uh, was the Presidio in California, the Presidio in San Francisco, uh, which, of course, was originally a Spanish fort, a Spanish base, uh, and then a a Mexican one uh, that was seized by U.S. forces during the Mexican-American War, during the conquest of of California and large parts of the Southwest when when in the Mexican-American War, a war that U.S. forces instigated, even by the admission of the, the State Department, uh, the, and the United States claimed then nearly half the territory of Mexico. Um, so this 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 base that was uh, one of one of the sort of spoils of war in the language of, of military leaders uh, then enabled the conquest of yet more territory outside of of North America uh, in the Philippines and and then not through conquest but through agreement uh, the the Guam as well. Um, And more broadly uh, in terms of putting bases at the center of the narrative, um, the book, well called the United States of war. And while telling a history of us wars, it's not a a history of, of wars in, in perhaps a traditional sense. Um, The book uses bases abroad as a lens to examine this long history uh, of wars, it is not a, a, a book that that tells you know the story of battle after battle after battle, but instead uses bases as a, lens, as a lens to understand why this long pattern of war exists and to understand other dynamics that that feed this pattern of war. The argument is not that that bases alone explain why the United States uh, has fought wars so constantly. And again, I should say that why the United States government and the United States military have fought war so constantly and consistently. uh, The argument is that bases provide a lens and a a way to understand the complicated dynamics that, of course, also involve political dynamics, economic dynamics related to capitalism, um, the forces of racism and and, and gender, specifically hyper-masculinity, and a kind of uh, nationalist Christianity all these sort of ideological forces, economic forces, social, political forces um, play a role in explaining why the United States has become, as, as the book's title suggests, a United States of War.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I had no idea. Um, well, first, I didn't know what Presidio meant, um, but I had no idea that that Presidio um, uh, w- had been involved in. All these different wars, but it's it's something that I'm actually familiar with in my own current research on um, um, the the United Nations, and um, and apparently um, Truman had actually offered um, the UN the Presidio as sort of a, a headquarters for the UN when it was um, uh, being when it was being debated as to where to even put the UN. Um, and so, in an alternative uh, timeline, um, the UN would would be sitting in, um, uh, I guess, like a former fort.
1: <laughs> Interesting.
0: Although it, 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 it's, I, I
1: didn't know that that story, but it it is uh, the Presidio in in San Francisco is a great example of of a few things, um, including the ways in which bases are not, are neither inevitable nor are they forever uh the The presidio in in San francisco has been converted into civilian use um into a whole variety of of housing and and office space and museums and schools and parkland um, It's a tremendous example of of how one can take a a, a military base and convert it into uh, peaceful ends and um into into to, to much different uses. Well, that that's really cool. Um, uh,
0: yeah, that's such a good example of um, uh, yeah some of the stuff that you're getting at in the end of your book um, about like what um, you know like de-imperialization would look like. Like th- this infrastructure could in in essence be turned into something um, uh, for civilian purposes, something interesting and useful for society.
1: On the on the other end of the spectrum, though, I, it would be worth just noting a, a bit more that the the base of the Presidio didn't. Just enable the conquest of the Philippines in a matter of weeks or a matter of months, as, as some often think. The U.S. war in the Philippines stretched from 19, oh, excuse me, from 1899 to 1913. Um, this was a, a counterinsurgency war that the United States fought for years. Um, and a bloody and terrible one that took the lives of hundreds of thousands of, mostly Filipinos, but also U.S. military personnel. Uh, the the U.S. Uh, military, of course, seized the Philippines initially from uh, the Spanish Empire, but then, rather than turning the Philippines over to the Filipino people, uh, kept uh, the Philippines for uh, in the hands of the U.S. government, um, and then fought uh, those Filipinos who who sought to remove their new colonial rulers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- that's actually really useful. Um, to hear because um what that tells me is that these um, uh, these bases are and these forts are um like they're long term infrastructure like they they're they, they are the infrastructure that um enables forever wars yeah they'
1: bases bases abroad in particular are often referred to as foreign policy written in concrete uh, bases you know it's again neither a coincidence nor Um, should it shock us in a certain way that there are far more U.S. bases abroad than there are embassies and consulates. And bases and war have really defined U.S. foreign policy, especially since World War II, when, as I describe it in the book, the United States creates really an empire of bases, an an empire defined by uh, its, its bases abroad in many ways, in a way unlike any other empire previously.
0: Yeah. And um, I I do want to just jump ahead again um, uh, to, I guess we we might call it like another chapter in um, yeah, this like long durée of um, the base empire. So the second world war is really critical for your, uh, your book because it's, it's in this moment when um, well, like the number of bases that it has proliferates. Um, And one of the key things that you talk about is the Destroyers for Bases Deal. Can you explain what that deal was and why and how it transformed U.S. strategy? Sure. And in many ways, it, it it
1: ties in with with your fantastic work showing that the national security state doesn't emerge during World War II or in the earliest days of the Cold War, but really emerges you know, toward the end of the the interwar period, toward the, toward the end of the period before the United States enters World War II. Indeed, uh, the same is is true with with U.S. bases abroad. There was an interest among U.S. policymakers, U.S. leaders, uh, U.S. elites in acquiring new bases abroad, specifically in the Caribbean, during the 1930s, before World War II, uh, and, and perhaps in acquiring new colonies in the Caribbean. But what we see with the the destroyers for bases deal is in the earliest days of World War II. Actually, both Britain and France approached, this is before France was conquered by, by Hitler's armies, uh, both Britain and France approached the U.S. government uh, to, to gain access to U.S. World War I-era destroyers, naval vessels, uh, and in the case of, of, of Britain, uh, the British government offered in exchange 99-year uh, leases on a series of military bases in British colonies. Uh, and what this meant, uh, after uh, President Roosevelt signed an executive agreement with uh, Prime Minister Churchill, uh, without the uh, oversight or agreement of Congress or or Parliament, they just did it, uh, what it meant was that, that the United States transferred these 50... World War I era destroyers uh, in exchange for uh, really a string of military bases uh, in the Atlantic stretching from Newfoundland to the top of of South America. Um, And in effect, this expanded uh, U.S. territory dramatically. The actual land territory claimed um, was rather discrete bases on these colonies, um, but it really changed, as, as many people living in the colonies understood, it changed the ruling power in a de facto sense um, from British colonial rule to, to U.S. colonial rule, or certainly uh, meant that, that U.S. control was, was suddenly very significant in these colonies. Uh, and in addition to sort of the discrete U.S.-based territory claimed in these colonies, uh, as I explain in the book, u uh, s territory expanded in another sense in the both the water area uh, the area of the of the ocean claimed by the United States and in the effectively the air rights the the area above the seas that now the United States could patrol with both its uh, naval vessels and its growing air force or the u s army air Force. Um, so it was a, a pretty dramatic expansion in in US territorial control even though the the actual land area controlled was was quite discrete and this becomes sort of the model for the empire of bases that that expands even more m- much more dramatically during World War II and and is maintained after World War II where the United States engaged in dramatic and widespread territorial conquest in the 19th century, conquering a very large swath of North America, uh, and then smaller bits of territory outside of North America, um, Hawaii, the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, um, and other colonies. Uh, In the World War II period and the post-World War II period, the expansion of territory comes in the form of the acquisition of military bases abroad, military bases on other people's territory and this in a certain sense this this claiming of territory is indeed again very discreet very um isolated in nature even for the large size of many of these bases of course you know they're compared to the size of all of germany a uh, bases is quite small but that in uh, a practical sense u.s power uh, expands dramatically with the acquisition of these discrete plots of land uh, u.s Political power, military power, economic power, uh, such that bases become a critical imperial tool uh, of the U.S. government in the post-World War II era to this day.
0: Mm-hmm. In the um, post-war era, it—I it, mean—it really sets up the U.S.'s sort of I don't know, like military footprint in the Cold War. Um, but then it also um, has these like interesting connections with decolonization. And I wanted to ask you about um, Stuart Barber, um, who is a character that you profile in your book, because um, um, he's someone that really thought about the, the meaning of decolonization for the U.S. military and its bases. Um, and he's the guy who created the idea of the um, the strategic island concept. And I mean, you've already kind of given us a little bit of a, about the Diego Garcia story, um, but I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about Barber, who he was, and um, uh, sort of like w- what his idea consisted of.
1: Sure, and he really follows in the wake of of World War II, and, and indeed you know, was in the Navy during World War II. But what we saw during World War II was initially on the part of President Roosevelt and his administration, a a commitment to decolonization and an anti-colonial rhetoric, very powerful anti-colonial rhetoric at times. But then over the course of World War II, one sees some pretty significant slippage uh, where uh, the U.S. government is increasingly supportive of both the French and British empires maintaining a hold on their empires and their colonies in the post-World War II period. Uh, similarly, the, the United States uh, largely, uh, the U.S. government largely decides to hold on to U.S. colonies after World War II. The one ex- major exception being the Philippines, which gains its independence in 1946. Uh, but it's a very limited form of independence where the U.S. maintains a significant degree of dominance economically and politically over the Philippines, and after in the, in the toward the end of the 1940s and into the 1950s, of course, the decolonization movement around the world gains momentum uh, as, as as countries as f- former colonies gain their independence and become new nations. Uh, as this was happening, there were U.S. government officials and and other elites who became concerned about, about this decolonization movement and became concerned that many of these new nations would side with the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc in the in the growing Cold War. Stuart Barber was one of the officials who was concerned about the decolonization process and his uh, solution to what he perceived to be the, the problem of, of new nations gaining independence and... Uh, likely, in his mind, siding with the Soviet Union or, at very least, uh, calling into question the existence of U.S. military bases in former British colonies, former French colonies, and and elsewhere abroad. Uh, Barber's solution was to acquire new military bases around the world, um, possibly in new U.S. colonies, um, but located on territory controlled by the United States government's closest allies, again, mostly Britain, France, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Australia, and a few others. So the, the idea was to acquire new territory, small, discrete island territory in particular, that could be controlled and maintained in the decolonization period. Uh, small pieces of territory that, that basically the, the world would, wouldn't would notice, um, that would be easier to, to maintain a hold on compared to large colonies uh, that were increasingly gaining their independence and the idea was to to, to snap up these small bits of island territory uh, with the idea of building future military bases on them and this is what led uh, Barber and then others in the Navy and other others in in the US government to identify Diego Garcia this island in the Indian Ocean as a, a prime target for acquisition indeed it became the the major, uh, base created under what Barber coined the "strategic island" concept. This is how he described his his strategy uh, to react to the, the the decolonization movement and and what he and other U.S. leaders perceived as as uh, their increasing uh, increasingly tenuous grip on control of the world. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really through Barber and um, and and yeah, th- these like um, broader ideas of the the, the strategic island concept um, that you start to see how um, you know U.S. elites and the military and government um, really see these bases as a way to kind of like maintain power in an age of decolonization, um, and uh, and yeah, and, like and Diego Garcia is obviously a really good example of that, and. I just want to leap again um, uh, a few decades um, ahead to the um, end of the Cold War and then um, with a question mark <laughs> um, so you have a chapter on 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 the end of the Cold war, but you basically pose it as a question um, because you know if if you're looking at cold war infrastructure um, in you know like in nineteen ninety um, and then again um, in nineteen ninety nine there's a lot of evidence that the Cold War was still going on. Um, can you uh, t- talk about the the 1990s and the uh, immediate attempt to um, reduce the number of uh, military bases and, uh, and troops overseas, but then how that um, really fizzled out? Sure. And
1: in, in some ways, it, it does help to connect this to World War II, so and the longer history of U.S. bases abroad. In short, as I mentioned, the first U.S. bases abroad were on Native American peoples, Native American nations' lands in North America. Uh, Pretty quickly, though, there were also small U.S. leasehold bases, patrol bases in in various parts of the world in the late 18th century and 19th century. uh, The United States acquires new bases abroad in the 1898 war with the Spanish Empire um, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico, and Guantanamo Bay, elsewhere, uh, and a few other bases abroad, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. But it's during World War II that that the collection of U.S. bases around the globe expands dramatically. And what we see at the end of World War II is that U.S. leaders essentially wanted to hold on to as many of these bases as possible, especially U.S. military leaders, uh, and and and. U.S. officials with control over over U.S. military policy. At the end of the Cold War, basically we see over the course of the Cold War, the number of U.S. military bases abroad fluctuated. Uh, The number expanded during the the U.S. wars in Korea and in in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. Um, They declined somewhat at the end of each of those wars. Um, but we see a growing number of bases in the, the end, toward the end of the Cold War in the 1980s, in the Middle East, in particular. Really, dramatic expansion in the number of U.S. bases and troops in the Middle East. Uh, and then, with the end of the Cold War, there was a push to cut the size of the U.S. military budget to uh, to achieve a, a peace dividend, as people talked about it at the time, and to close U.S. military bases abroad, some of them. Um, And indeed, we saw the closure of about 60% of the total number of of U.S. bases abroad uh, in the first four or five years of the post-Cold War War period, in the first four or five years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, But 40% remained. Um, a very large and substantial infrastructure of bases remained, and the basic structure, the basic geographic spread of the bases remained virtually the same. Um, The number of bases, especially in in Europe, um, declined, but the basic structure and infrastructure of U.S. bases abroad remained the same, um, and then begins to expand again uh, in the post-9-11 period, um, such that, Uh, At the end of the Cold War, there were about 1,600 U.S. bases outside the 50 states in Washington, D.C., in about 40 nations. Um, Today, there are around 800 U.S. military bases outside the 50 states and Washington, D.C., in around 80 countries and colonies or territories. Um, So so the the geographic spread has actually increased dramatically, doubling in the number of countries and colonies or territories hosting U.S. bases compared to the end of the Cold War. And and during the height of the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, there were actually more than 2,000 U.S. military bases abroad. So uh, in many ways, the the Cold War indeed did not end. And especially this is the case uh, when we look at at the situation today with what people are now explicitly talking about as growing Cold Wars with both China and Russia. And one of the reasons, in my mind, that that uh, these growing cold wars exist is because the infrastructure bases surrounding Russia and China never disappeared, and in fact, in recent years, have have grown and have have increasingly surrounded the borders of, of both China and Russia. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the um the, the current talk of uh, new Cold Wars is uh, is frightening. But yeah, but it's it's also um it's, it's hard to say that the old Cold War, at least like the, the, the infrastructure of the old Cold War ever really went away. Um and we just exist in this like one continuous um uh, forever war. Precisely. Um what I really what I would really like to talk about though is the conclusion. Um because um you know you Um, you end the book with essentially um, a way forward, like, you know, uh, an answer to the question, what is to be done? And I would really, I think it'd be really useful um, to have that conversation. Um, So, you know, to you, like what needs to be done to, um, you know, decolonize and and um, de-imperialize the United States and reduce the likelihood of war?
1: It, of course, is a, a hard question uh, because the problems and the long- term patterns are 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 deep and and profound. But I think, in short, we need dramatic structural change in the United States. We need to dramatically change u uh, s. foreign policy. We need to dramatically change u s budgetary priorities. One of the problems I identify as being a a major Factor in the post World War II period is the emergence of the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower named and identified as he was leaving office. The power of the military-industrial complex has expanded dramatically since Eisenhower uh, coined the term, uh, such that uh, the Pentagon is really, um, on its own, is really a fourth branch of government. Um, uh, but coupled with the power of the industrial part of uh, of the military-industrial complex, uh, has power that that shapes uh, U.S. foreign policy uh, to to a really unprecedented degree. Pre- President Trump recently uh, criticized uh, arms manufacturers, uh, saying that they they want to see the endless wars continue forever because they're they're making tons of money on these wars. And he he was of course exactly right. Um, you know, sometimes I say Trump is he's like a stop clock. You know, he's <laughs> twice a day he's right on time. Um, but of course, this was also tremendous chutzpah of a kind um, because he has has been a, a, a prime mover of, of money um, into the the pockets and bank accounts of these arms manufacturers. He has boosted U.S. military budgets to to near unprecedented levels. Levels. Only seen at the height of the the Cold War, uh, when you know what are the enemies facing the United States? What are the threats facing the United States? The United States is not facing uh, an empire like it faced in the Cold War in the form of the the Soviet Union. So. Um, as I said, we, we need deep structural change. We need to, we, the United States now has a, a military budget around $740 billion a year. Um, and that doesn't even include the uh, other totals that, that likely uh, bring the grand total to over a, a trillion dollars a year in spending. Uh, and and this, this, these sums are, are more than the, the total military budgets the next 10 uh, countries combined. Most of those countries are US allies. Um, in short, the, the US military budget is totally out of proportion to any threats facing the United States and is profoundly undermining the security of the United States in a whole variety of ways, and by making war more likely, um, but also by diverting funds from, from pressing needs in the United States. Like, uh, I don't know, there's that little pandemic thing. Um, you know, the, the fact that the United States has plowed just in the post 9/11 period 6.4 trillion dollars 6.4 trillion dollars that's trillion with a t wow. has been spent or obligated on the post 9/11 wars that's just on the wars um there's additional just basic military budget funding as well and that runs in the, into the trillions um, you know all this money plowed into the military and meanwhile pandemic preparedness was largely overlooked. And the United States was left completely unprepared for a threat that has ended up now taking the lives of more than 200,000 people. And this is just, you know, one example of the the misplaced priorities. Now, I mentioned the power of the military industrial complex, given that it is so profound now and and, and profoundly expanded since uh, the time of President Eisenhower, we need to really think about deep structural changes that that could undermine that power in some fashion it will be very difficult to take on the power of the weapons manufacturers and and their allies in congress uh, and their Plenty of examples for when the lack of success when when people have tried to take on that power. Um, so I, I point to things like converting um, attempts to convert the weapons manufacturers to, to rather than you know take down the Lockheed Martins to to convert them into um, pr- the production of, of civilian uh, large scale infrastructure projects. For example, um, I raise the possibility of, of a constitutional amendment or constitutional amendments to uh, weaken the power of of the military itself and the power of the president to to wage war, uh, which has become a major part of the the war system. Um, Closing military bases abroad, of course, has to be a major part of, of this kind of structural change. Uh, and, and I'm ha- happy to report that there are a growing number of people across the political spectrum who agree with me. This is not just a sort of left position. There are people uh, on the right um, across the political spectrum who increasingly, and within the military itself as well, who see that U.S. military bases abroad are really an outdated and, and, and misguided strategy that dates to from World War II and the early days of, of the Cold War. That in a whole variety of ways, uh, US military bases abroad are, are actually undermining US national security. They are, um, uh, of course, again, uh, diverting funds from pressing civilian needs like healthcare and the infrastructure at home, uh, schools, affordable housing. Uh, among many other needs. We have this huge infrastructure, very robust infrastructure, bases abroad, while our infrastructure at home is is crumbling. And meanwhile, the, just from a purely military perspective, um, investing all this money in bases abroad is is diverting funds from, from better positioning the United States military to defend the actual borders of the United States, uh, in addition to, to directing funds to diverting directing funds to defend the United States against things like uh, pandemics. Um, so closing bases abroad, again, perhaps considering the conversion of bases abroad, uh, perhaps converting uh, contracts uh, that, that you know, make literally billions of dollars a year for, for military contractors on these bases, converting them into civilian uses abroad in much the way that the Presidio in the United States was was converted into civilian uses is is one model. Uh, And then, you know, I point to some other critical structural changes like uh, either giving independence to the remaining U.S. colonies or making them states. Um, The fact that there are third and fourth class U.S. citizens in the United States uh, is uh, really an outrage and a travesty. Um, there are many outrages and travesties in in this story, and and I think we we should be outraged. Uh, you know, again, beginning with the six point four trillion dollars that has been wasted, and that has taken the lives of or contributed to the the loss of life of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, The Cost of War Project has estimated uh, that around 800,000 people have died in just five of the US post 9-11 wars, the wars on terror, uh, or the wars that are part of the war on terror. Um, And that's just people who've died in direct combat, Afghans, Iraqis, uh, people in Libya, Yemen, um, Syria, and beyond. in terms of indirect deaths, people have died uh, because healthcare infrastructure has been destroyed because so many of these societies have been destroyed in so many ways. The total death toll likely runs somewhere between three and four million people at least, and the injuries surely number into the tens of millions the The destruction that that these post 911 wars have wreaked is is really very difficult to fathom and you know those numbers should make us weep, I think, especially as U.S. citizens, um, similar to the, the $6.4 trillion invested in these wars, the money that wasn't invested in the healthcare, pandemic preparedness, education, um, and and overall quality of life of people in the United States and, and people around the world, that should make us weep as well. It's uh, a... a Tragedy doesn't even begin to capture the horror of the the catastrophe in my mind. And we need people to get involved in movements to dramatically shift the the priorities of the United States, uh, the spending of the United States, and uh, make the United States, as as I say toward the end of the book, a United States of, of peace rather than a United States of war.
0: Well, I I think that's actually a really good place to leave our conversation. Um, So, David, I really want to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me.
1: Thank you very much. It really was a pleasure. And thank you for the fantastic questions and conversation.
0: Yeah, no, I I learned so much from reading your book. And I also learned so much just from uh, chatting with you over the last hour. Um, I've been speaking with David Vine, author of The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network.